The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we study God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 1.9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a tremendous privilege that we too often take for granted that we can come together as a body of believers in freedom to study your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation that we can do this and for the many believers who in times past gave their lives that we might have these freedoms and for those who've served in the military as well to uh, provide these freedoms for us and to preserve these freedoms. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for civilian as well as military leadership that you would guide and direct them and give them the wisdom they need to make the right decisions. We pray for our nation as it drifts further and further away from your word that you would continue to raise up men who would proclaim the truth, that the truth will either be a source of wisdom that people will respond to or, as is often the case, a sign of judgment upon those who have rejected the truth. Now, Father, as we gather together, we pray that we might be refreshed this evening by the study of your word, be reminded of your sovereign plan in history and of our future destiny. We pray that we might be strengthened in our soul and God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and we've taken the time in the last few weeks to deal with a couple of the crucial issues for just interpreting Hebrews chapter 3, which is a historically difficult chapter to interpret and to understand. As I've pointed out many times, so much so that you're probably tired of hearing it, but you'll hear it a thousand times more, Hebrews is a written Sermon. It was probably originally given as an oral message, was written down, edited some, or developed a little bit. But the structure is built around these warning or exhortation passages or what we might call application passages, challenges to believers to take the principles that are taught and put them into practice in their life. The 
readers of the book of Hebrews, those who were the original recipients were Jews who were living in the land of Israel before uh, Israel was destroyed by the Romans, or before Judah was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., and they were being pressured because of persecution, because of rejection, because of the hostility from other Jews to leave Christianity and go back into Judaism and into, into temple worship. So the writer of Hebrews is writing them, challenging them to hang tough, that despite the opposition, adversity, difficulty, rejection, hostility, whatever it may be, don't give up in the midst of the battle. The Christian life is a battle. It is a struggle. And the rewards go to those who persevere, those who endure, those who hang in there when the going gets rough. And so each of these sections of the book ends with this exhortation, with this challenge. You have a didactic section that breaks down certain key doctrines, principles, building on Old Testament passages, and then concluding with ever-lengthening warning or application passages. So this section, which began back in chapter 2, verse 5, focused on Jesus Christ as our pioneer in sanctification, that he was tested as we are. And that was to provide the basis not only for him to qualify to go to the cross, but also to set the pattern, set the precedent to be the pioneer pathfinder for the spiritual life, preparing him to be a high priest who commiserates with us in our weaknesses because he too being a true human being, is one that has suffered and been tested in every category as we are. Because of his faithfulness, he is the one who is over the house in his humanity as a son and in authority. That brings us up very quickly to chapter 3, verse 7, where the writer draws a conclusion. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he goes to Psalm 95, verse 7b through 11, to quote a warning passage that the writer of Psalm 95 is writing to his generation. Now, the writer of Psalm 95 is writing much later than the events that were given in... uh, in Exodus, so you had the situation in Exodus, which in the Exodus generation, which occurs from approximately 1446 BC to 1406 BC, that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they all died out, and then you leap over time to the generation that the writer of Psalm 95 is addressing, and he brings the warning from the. 15th century B.C. into his generation, and he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, and he makes an application there in Psalm 95 that you you as a believer today in this generation have a decision to make. And that decision is, are you going to harden your heart in unbelief, or are you going to trust God and fail in the same way the Exodus generation failed? So the writer of Hebrews then goes to that application section of Psalm 95 quotes these verses and applies them to his generation and he says addressing these uh, Jewish believers of uh, approximately 63, 64, 65 AD he says today if you will hear his voice and so this contemporization 
of Psalm 95 is just as applicable today. And it is a warning to each of us, each day. Today, are we going to be on a positive volition track? Are we going to listen to the Word of God and are we going to apply it? Because the consequences are serious. And in the past, we examined, in the past couple of weeks, we looked at the details with the Exodus generation. We traced their failures, the different times that they expressed unbelief as they left Egypt and they went through various testings in the desert with the battle with the Amalekites, first crossing the Red Sea, then battle with the Amalekites, then going to Sinai, then after Sinai, the grumbling and complaining related to logistical grace, related to the problem of food and God's provision of manna, the same manna day after day after day, and water, and all the other tests they went through culminating in their major failure at Kadesh Barnea. Following Kadesh Barnea, there were a couple of more incidences of failure, the last major failure of which was Moses' failure when, rather than speaking to the rock, he struck the rock uh, in anger, and God, nevertheless, in his grace, still provided uh, water for the people. But that whole scenario of the testing of the nation from the time that they left Egypt up through Kadesh Barnea and Moses' failure is the backdrop for this warning. They failed in unbelief. Now, the point that we had to develop was, were they believers or not? And so we, I went back through and we went through the passages and demonstrating that, yes, they were believers. This was a generation that in many places is said to trust God. And so it's a generation of believers but a generation of believers that were unwilling to really follow the Lord, to trust Him for everything that He promised. And that was exemplified in their major failure. This is the warning. Because they failed, they were unable, they were prohibited from entering into that promise rest of the promised land that God had promised them. And so the heart or one other issue that is at the heart of this whole section from 3-7 down through the end of chapter 4 is the issue of rest. And so rest has three ideas in this passage. The first we saw is creation rest. That is the rest of God on the seventh day of the original creation week when He ceased His work. It wasn't because He was tired. It wasn't because He was worn out wasn't because he had just stretched his powers to the limit. It was God doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. He is omnipotent. But he ceased his work. He had completed the project. So there was the creation rest, which then stands as a paradigm for the other rests in Scripture. The second rest is the promised land rest. This is the rest that God had promised the Exodus generation that as they entered the land you would enter my rest. This would be a time when they would be free from the uh, attacks of external enemies and that God would provide richly for them in prosperity and the land characterized as a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of tremendous abundance if they would trust him. But of course they failed. They weren't allowed to enter into what the scripture says was my rest, God's rest. And it's that promised land rest, as well as the creation rest before it, which foreshadow the ultimate rest, which is the millennial kingdom rest. And that is the backdrop of these warnings for 
uh, our generation. The Exodus generation failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief. Not an unbelief that kept them from salvation or justification salvation, but an unbelief that kept them from experiencing the full blessings that God had provided for them potentially in terms of their uh, spiritual life. So this challenge is then brought over to church-age believers that Old Testament saints forfeited those contingent blessings in time. And if that happened to that generation because they disobeyed Moses, who was merely a human leader, how much more serious is it going to be for church-age believers who are under the authority of a greater leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a greater promised destiny to rule and reign with Him in the Millennial Kingdom. So Hebrews 3.13 gives us the challenge for every believer to exhort or to challenge one another daily while it is called today. Notice the repetition of that word today. This is immediate. This is serious. This is something that we dare not grow lax in. We need to pay attention to this every day because we don't know when the Lord's coming back. It could be tomorrow. It could be tonight. It might be ten years from now. Not only do we not know when the Lord's coming back, we don't know when the Lord's going to take us home. So we need to be serious about the priority of our spiritual life on a day-to-day basis. So the writer of Hebrews says to exhort one another daily. A continual activity. The Greek is parakaleo. It's a present active imperative, second person plural, which means that it is addressed to the entire congregation, that uh, y'all, as we would put it down south, y'all exhort one another. This is that reciprocal ministry within the body of Christ. Believers aren't islands unto themselves. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we were members of one another in the body of Christ and we have reciprocal responsibilities that are part of our priesthood and part of our ambassadorship. And this isn't uh, telling you to just run around the church and uh, encourage everybody with some sort of trivial or trite or cliche phrase, but this has to do with the fact that within the parameters of our Uh, associates, our friends, our family, those whom we know, we are to encourage one another in the midst of difficulties and struggles and adversity so that we don't give up in the battle in the spiritual life. So the word exhort is from the Greek word parakaleo, from the uh, preposition parad, alongside or next to or close to, and kaleo, to be called alongside, and it has the idea of of coming alongside of someone to encourage them, to help them, to aid them, to strengthen them in uh, times of difficulty, times of adversity. And, of course, this is not something you do occasionally. The text says it's daily. This is part of the, the spiritual life of every believer in relation to other believers encourage or challenge one another, strengthen one another daily. Of course, you do that through doctrine. You do that through by reminding folks of promises and application of doctrine. While it is called today, lest you be hardened. See, there's a sense of urgency, a sense of immediacy, that if you slip today and you're carnal today, then you can compound that tomorrow by staying out of fellowship, and you can start that 
downward slide, that slippery slope into uh, harsh carnality very easily. And the word for hardened is the Greek word scleruno. It's an aorist passage disjunctive indicating the potentiality of this, that it's possible for any of us to fall into this state, to become resistant to truth, to stubborn, to the application of doctrine, unyielding. We get stuck in doing things our ways. Things seem comfortable. Human viewpoint seems to work for us. And we get stuck in these patterns of, uh, of unbelief through the deceitfulness of sin. And that word is apate, which means deception or delusion. Sin is, is self-deluding. We think it's working for us. We think it actually helps. It makes us feel better sometimes. Sometimes it seems to produce the outcome that we desire. But this is the problem with sin is that it is deceitful. And when we are living a life of carnality, operating on the sin nature, we are deluded and we are delusional and we are divorced from reality. So we're challenged to encourage one another. Why? Explanation is given in verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. Now, this isn't the same as being in Christ. This isn't positional truth. This is really a potential. Our partnership with Christ, because the destiny that God has set up, it's a contingent blessing in eternity. This blessing that God has set up for us is to rule with Him, with Jesus Christ, in the kingdom as kings and priests. But we have to be trained for the job. We have to be ready for it. There is an ongoing uh, training process, and that is called our spiritual life in time. And we are being trained now to develop the capacity, the wisdom, the doctrinal orientation, the grace orientation, in order to be prepared to lead, to make decisions, and to administer the kingdom with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So the writer says, For we have become partakers, that's our potential, our partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, if we stick with it, if there's perseverance, not in the Calvinist sense of the perseverance of the saints that uh, teaches the concept that if you're a real believer, you won't fall away, that you'll continue to be obedient all your life, but in the sense that you stick to it. The old concept of stick to in the Christian life. This is the same principle James emphasizes in, in James 1, 2 through 4, which we looked at on Tuesday night, that we're to count it joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith, the testing of the doctrine in our soul, produces hupomone, produces endurance, produces perseverance, produces that steadfastness. So the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the same kind of theme that the writer of James is emphasizing. That is, don't give up. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by the details of life. Don't be distracted by your job, your career, uh, marriage, friendship, social life, uh, all the different things that we have today. Just think of what it must have been like 
100, 200, 300 years ago when you didn't have television, you didn't have entertainment, you didn't have all these other distractions that we have in life today. You know, you lived in your home and you worked someplace that took you about 20 minutes to walk to and you walked home and you just didn't have all these other things that took up time and took your attention away. Of course, you didn't have electricity, so you... Uh, couldn't read the Bible late at night and all these other things. We know there are certain benefits of modern time, but you don't have those uh, those fundamental distractions. So we have to endure. We have to be steadfast to the end and not lose sight of the real reason that we are here on planet Earth in phase two of the Christian life, and that is to be trained for the future. We have to have that, that future orientation. So the the writer of Hebrews says we are to uh, keep this confidence steadfast to the end while it is said. And again, he quotes from Psalm 95. Three times in this section he's going to quote from Psalm 95. He'll do it again when you get down to uh, chapter 4, verse 7. So whenever the Holy Spirit repeats something twice, we need to pay attention. When he repeats it three times in this short of a space, the Holy Spirit is taken out a two-by-four, and he's banging on us right between the ears to make sure we understand the seriousness of this. So again, he repeats uh, Psalm 95.7, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the example that for us is this uh, negative generation of the Exodus, the negative generation of the Exodus. And that is held up as a negative example for us throughout the Scriptures. Verse 16, he goes on to talk about them for who, that is the rebellious generation of the Exodus, for who having heard, uh, excuse me, in verse 16 he's drawing a principle. He says, for who having heard. Who having heard all about this, who having understood what the Exodus generation had, the potential they had, who having heard that would rebel. But they did. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt? The whole generation, with two exceptions. Caleb and Joshua. But except for Caleb and Joshua, everybody else rebelled with all that they had, all that they saw, with the miracles that they witnessed. They heard the voice of God. Can you imagine that at the base of Mount Sinai? And they heard the voice of God. It just blew the hair back. And then they, 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 of course, before that, they had seen God part the Red Sea. They had seen the plagues in Egypt. And after they left Sinai, they saw God provide for them with the manna, with the water from the rock. And in many different ways, they witnessed these miracles. And yet it didn't make a bit of difference. You know, we often think if God would only do something in somebody's life, that they would hear the gospel. And we forget that here in the Exodus event, you had all these believers who saw all these things and it didn't make any difference. And then you come over to the New Testament and you see the Gospel of John, which talks about all of the signs that Jesus did so that people would recognize who he was, and you still had massive rejection. Miracles are not going to provide a basis for evangelism. They may provide the basis for condemnation, at some point, but they do not provide a basis for evangelism. The reason I make that point is every decade or so, somebody comes out with some new theory on how we can uh, 
uh, really expand the church and lead a lot of people to Christ if we just would believe in miracles. And if we would trust God to perform more miracles, then more people would come to the Lord. Well, that never happened in the Bible, so why do we think it, it's going to happen now? So in verse 16, the writer says, For who having heard rebelled? They did. Indeed, it was not, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17, now with whom was he angry for 40 years? God was angry with them for 40 years. Now, the concept of God's anger is a concept that relates to an anthropopathism. Now, an anthropopathism is a word or phrase related to human emotion that's applied to God in order to understand God's policies, purposes, or plans for man. doesn't mean God actually possesses that any more than when you say the eyes of God or the nose of God. These are called anthropomorphisms, that God doesn't really have eyes like we have eyes. He doesn't have a nose like we have nose, a nose. Uh, same thing applies to certain e- emotions that are applied to God. God is not a sinner. God doesn't get angry as we do. But he expresses the harshness of God's justice and discipline on man. We use a similar phrase as an idiom when we talk about uh, going into court and that the wrath of the court, that a criminal felt the wrath of the judge. Well, the judge wasn't necessarily angry. Nobody wants a, an angry, emotional judge, but they do want a judge who is objective But when the judge throws the book at somebody, that is uh, often referred to as the wrath of the court. That's the same way this terminology is used in Scripture relating to to God. He, He is omniscient. That means he knows all the knowable. Ten billion years ago, he knew the Jews were going to want an idol built at the foot of Mount Sinai. He didn't just find out about it that day and get mad at them. Uh, if God, uh, if this is an emotional thing, then that meant God was emotionally angry with Israel for all eternity. That really doesn't make sense. These are graphic terms, idioms that are used to express the seriousness of God's justice and the intensity of his condemnation on Israel. So he was, for 40 years, he disciplined them as they were in the wilderness. Now, when they're in the wilderness down there on the Sinai Peninsula, they weren't traveling very far. You know, you think 40 years walking around, you could cover the state of Texas two or three times. But they're in an area that wasn't much larger than Harris County, maybe uh, twice the size. It was a small area. But they're, they're burying, you know, 15, 18,000 people every day if you work out the averages. So they're spending a lot of time having funerals. They're not making a lot of forward momentum. They're just wandering around in a small area waiting for that generation to die off before they could enter into the land. So verse 17 says, Now with whom was he angry? That is, with the Exodus generation. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? That generation felt the condemnation of God because they would not trust God. It was a sin of unbelief. The word there translated uh, God's anger is the word prosokthizo. Prosokthizo, which means to be grieved, offended, uh, provoked, or angry. It's, again, an anthropopathism for the judgment of God 
against man. Verse 18, the writer says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Now here, his rest refers to the, the promised land. It doesn't refer to his rest at the seventh day, the creation rest. It doesn't refer to millennial rest, but it refers to promised land rest. But So he swore that they would not experience that contingent blessing in time of entering into the promised land. And it was because of their unbelief. This is verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. There are consequences to our spiritual failures. We can be forgiven. God forgave them. We saw that in Numbers 15 after they disobeyed God and they expressed their unbelief and they followed the ten spies rather than Joshua and Caleb. Afterwards, the text says that God forgave them. But there were consequences for sin. There's a difference between forgiveness and the removal of consequences. Sometimes when God forgives us, He removes the consequences. Sometimes He forgives us and the consequences remain. Sometimes the consequences are such that they can't be reversed. So you still have to live with the consequences of that particular sin. Now, we look at this generation and we realize that they stand as an example for us, and they're used as an example for us in many places in Scripture. So I want to take some time to review how the Exodus generation is an example to us throughout the Scriptures. And we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, to get the foundation for this doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, Now these things, that is the things that occurred to the Exodus generation. We'll look at the context of the previous five verses as we go through this doctrine. But in verse 6 he writes, Now these things, that is the things that happened to the Exodus generation, these things became our examples to the intent or for the purpose that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. In other words, we're to learn from their mistakes and not go through the same mistakes. Unfortunately, most of us aren't like that. No matter how much we watch other people and we see them fail, we think that for some reason that doesn't apply to us. And we can do the same thing and somehow it, uh, it won't affect us and we won't go through the same consequences. Now, in this verse, we see a word that is translated examples. A word translated examples. And this is, let me see if I made a slide on this. No, I didn't. This is the Greek word tupos, T-U-P-O-S. The U or upsilon is transliterated into English often as a Y, so that would come across as typos. That's where we get our word type. That's an antiquated word now. You don't see too many people talking about types. But a type is an example. It is something that is a, a picture or a model of something that would come later on. The word uh, tupas originally had the idea of striking something in the sense of striking a mold, uh, making a, uh, or, or hitting something with a blow so that it left an imprint. And so that you have the 
two words that are developed. That is the type, that is the original uh, mold, and then the impression that is made from it is called the anti-type or the anti-tupas. So you have the type, which is the original model or mold or pattern that foreshadows something. It's a shadow image that foreshadows or teaches something, usually in the future. For example, in the Old Testament, you have a classic type of Christ, which is the Lamb of God, who is to be unblemished, without spot or blemish, and that was to picture his impeccability, that he was fully qualified to go to the cross. That's a simple concept of a type. There are many types in the Old Testament. There are, unfortunately, many preachers and theologians that have tried to make everything in the Old Testament a type. You ought to read, who was that? Uh, Arthur Pink. Gleanings in Genesis, gleanings in Exodus, gleanings. He gleaned the whole Bible. And I read, I had somebody recommend gleanings in Genesis to me years ago when I was in college. And I think I read about half of it. And he had everything that happened somehow pictured or foreshadowed something in Christ. Well, that's taking the concept of typology to the extreme. You've got to be careful. Some people reacted to that, and they don't want to make anything a type. No, there are types. It's a legitimate uh, discipline or hermeneutical aspect of the Scriptures, interpretive aspect of the Scriptures, and we see it right here in 1 Corinthians 10.6, that the Exodus generation was a type. It foreshadowed something. And as I have pointed out in the past, we see that the nation of Israel itself, the life, certain things that happen in the corporate body of the nation of Israel is a picture of what happens in the individual life of New Testament believers. So that the national failure of Israel at this time, where they don't go into the land, they don't experience the promise of God, the contingent blessing of the promised rest, is a type or picture of what can happen in the individual life of a church-age believer who fails to endure and persevere to grow toward spiritual maturity and jeopardizes his contingent blessings for eternity in terms of his ruling and reigning privileges during the Millennial Kingdom. So we find that uh, the Old Testament uses Israel often our God uses Israel as a type for the, for the Christian life, and specifically this generation. It's used again and again this way. Let's look at some examples. First of all, the death of Christ is described in Luke 9.31 as an exodus. It uses the word, uh, the Greek word exodus. That's where we get it. It's uh, just a transliteration of the Greek word to depart or to go somewhere. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 31... We read that he appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So that would refer to his work on the cross and then his resurrection and ascension. So the concept of exodus, the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, is a picture of Christ's exodus from the earth. A uh, second way in which the that uh, Exodus generation or an event in the Exodus generation is a type of something that comes later in the life of Christ is that Christ is our Passover. He is the true Passover lamb 
that was sacrificed as a substitute for our salvation. And the Passover lamb is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. As a Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we read, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that is a reference to confession of sin and sanctification, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly since you truly are unleavened positional truth for indeed Christ our passover was sacrificed for us so you have to understand the dynamics of the passover in exodus to understand how Christ is our passover 1 Corinthians 5:7 specifically this is with reference to his work as the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, the paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. Uh, Our third point, specifically, Jesus Christ is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. This statement was made by John the Baptist. When John the Baptist saw Jesus come down to the Jordan River, he looked at him and, and he said, Behold, the lamb of God. And all the Jews that were there understood exactly what he meant. There was no question in their mind that he was taking the Passover lamb uh, imagery and applying it specifically to this man who was walking down. And the rabbis had taught that that was a passage, a a symbol, an imagery of the Messiah. So when John the Baptist said that, this was a profound statement. That crowd probably was falling all over themselves looking to see who he was uh, talking about. Same imagery is picked up by Peter. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Because you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from your aimless uh, conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So he is specifically connecting the work of Christ on the cross to the image, the type, the shadow image, the picture that was provided all those years as the Jews celebrated the Passover. So we have the Exodus event. We have the Passover itself as a type of Christ. We have the lamb, the Passover lamb as a type of Christ. And then fourth, following the Exodus from Egypt, Israel enters into the wilderness Israel's experience in the wilderness, in the hostility of the, uh, of the wilderness, where they were totally dependent upon God for their survival in the midst of all kinds of military opposition, uh, environmental uh, hostility, uh, in, they were dependent upon God. In the same way, the church, church-age believers are living in a hostile environment. We are living in a warfare situation. We are no different from the special ops guys over in Iraq who are out there running around behind uh, enemy lines disguised, uh, living in the culture, uh, living off the land, uh, surrounded by potential enemies. We're the same way. We are in a hostile environment, and we need that support base that comes from the encouragement of other believers. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we're to encourage one another as long as it is called today. We're living in that same hostile environment. So the, the, the nation Israel, as they go through that wilderness experience, is a picture 
of the church and church age believers living in a hostile environment. This is this idea is picked up by Stephen in his uh, final parting message before he was stoned by the Sanhedrin. And Acts 7, 37 and 38, he says, This is what Moses who said, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation or the assembly in the wilderness, talking about how Jesus Christ in his pre incarnate state was there continually present with the assembly of Jews, not the church, but with the assembly in the wilderness, and uh, he was the angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state who was there to sustain them in the midst of all their adversities and all their trials in the Old Testament. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ is, as our high priest, is continuously praying for us, interceding for us. He has provided the Word of God for us and all the principles in the Word of God as well as His precedent-setting application of the Word during the Incarnation as the resource for us to handle any adversity as we live in the midst of the world or the cosmic system. He prays for us as He prayed in John 17, which is Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I do not ask You to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one in the world. So we are not to go off and live on a mountaintop somewhere in a monastery separated from whatever is going on in the world, but we are to be in the cosmic system, but living for Christ as ambassadors. Fifth area in which there is an example from the Old Testament generation, from the Exodus generation. And that has to do with the baptism of Israel into Moses, which is a picture of the identification of the believer with Jesus Christ. There are eight baptisms in the Bible. Uh, Three of them are wet baptisms or ritual baptisms. There's the baptism of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and believer's baptism, those were all wet. And then there are five dry or real baptisms. And there's the baptism of the cross. There's the uh, baptism of fire. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me see, that's three of them. There's the uh, baptism uh, with Moses. And then there's the baptism with Noah. Those were all dry baptisms. And in the baptism of Moses and the baptism with Noah, which is in Second uh, Peter chapter Three, those are uh, dry baptisms. The people get they got wet, died. So you have to distinguish what baptism is being talked about and the significance and meaning of the word. Baptism itself, the Greek word baptizo, means to plunge or immerse or to dip. But it's not just limited to its literal meaning. It was the act of plunging or immersing or dipping something into something was to signify something. It was a, it had to do with identification and initiation. Identification and initiation. Whatever was dipped or immersed into something else was identified with it. And this also indicated that it was entering into a new state 
a new set of circumstances. It was an initiatory rite. For example, when the Greek hoplite soldier, when the basic infantry soldier got out of boot camp and at his graduation exercise, he would take his sword and he would dip it, he would baptize it into a bucket of pig's blood. This was did two things. It identified the weapon with blood and with violence because from now on he was going to be a warrior. And it was an initiation that he was ready to do this. He had completed his training, and he is now ready to go uh, go into battle. So baptism always had this picture, this picture of identification with something and initiation into a new state. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we have the baptism with Moses. And Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware, that is, ignorant, that all our fathers, that is, the patriarchs of Israel at the time of the Exodus, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, under the cloud meant that they were being led by the Shekinah glory that appeared as a pillar of cloud during the day and pillar of fire at night. Passing through the sea is a reference to passing through the Red Sea, or literally the Yom Suf, the Reed Sea, on dry ground, after which the soldiers of chariots of Pharaoh were uh, were drowned and wiped out. Then in verse 2, Paul says, All, that is, all of the, the Jews who passed through the sea following the leadership of the Shekinah glory, all were baptized or identified with Moses. That is, they by passing through the Red Sea, they were following him, trusting Moses. They're identifying with his faith. It is an initiation. This is the initiation rite of the nation. When they cross through the Red Sea, they have uh, passed through the waters there in a new State. They have identified themselves with Moses, indicated by the Greek preposition ace, translated into, and that identification with Moses was by means of the cloud, the Shekinah glory leading them, and by means of the sea. But, of course, they didn't get wet. But they are now identified with Moses in terms of his faith. So the Exodus generation provides a picture for us of baptism by means of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament because we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection that initiates us into new life. This is seen in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, that's that same preposition there, Ace that's used in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.2, into Moses, into Christ. We're identified with Christ, Jesus, and we were baptized into his death. That is, we are identified with his death. So that at the instant that you trust Christ as your Savior, you are identified with Christ in his death, and according to verse 4, we are buried with him through baptism, identification to death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. See, there's an initiation into a new life because we have been identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So the Jewish 
baptism by the whole by, uh, baptism with Moses is a picture or a type or a shadow image uh, of what happens to every believer in the church age. We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we have a new life, new potential. See, the Jews came out of it out of Egypt and they had a new potential. And that potential was related to experiencing the blessing of God living in the land of milk and honey, the promised land that God was going to lead them to. That was a potential, and the potential was contingent upon their trusting God. But what happened? Again and again and again and again, they just they don't trust Him. Until finally it reaches this crisis point at Kadesh Barnea, where it's the last straw and God says, okay, that's it. You are not going to enter my rest. You have jeopardized your eternal or your, your temporal contingent rewards and you're not going to have them at all. They're taken away. And the same thing can happen to us and that's why uh, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is saying this. Okay, the, our fifth point was that the baptism of Israel into Moses is a picture of the identification of the believer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sixth point, our eating and drinking of Christ is pictured by their eating manna and drinking the water from the spiritual rock that was Christ. Now, what in the world am I talking about here? Now you have to be a little uh, cognizant of what's going on in Scripture. First of all, let's look at uh, the 1 Corinthians 10 passage again. What I'm saying here is that we are to eat Christ's flesh and drink Christ's blood. That's what he says in John 6. We'll look at that in just a minute. That was pictured by the Jews eating manna in the wilderness and drinking the water that came out of the rock. That's indicated several times in Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3, we read... All ate the same spiritual food. They all ate manna. Manna is from the Hebrew Hebrew words manhu, which means what it is. They looked at that and they looked at it. What? What is that? We don't know what. We never see anything like that. What it is? They wanted to know what. So that's what they called it. They called it. What is it? Every morning they got up and they went outside and they collected the what is it. To have for breakfast. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. That is, the physical water that came out of the rock had a spiritual significance, just as the physical manna was a picture of something spiritual. And that is that God provides our ongoing day-to-day nourishment and sustenance in the spiritual life. And that's explained in the fourth verse there. For they, that is the Jews in the Exodus generation, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there. He's the one who was always in their midst. He's the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul shows that these events that happened in the and for and to the Exodus generation pictures these dynamic principles for the church age. This is what Jesus refers to when he stands out there in front of this Jewish crowd and says, I am the living bread. 
they're thinking biblically. If they And they knew their Old Testament. They knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be that which was pictured by the spiritual food, the manna that the Exodus generation complained about. He said, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... Now, he's not talking about physically eating him. Now, this is the problem that the Roman Catholic theologians got into in the early Middle Ages due to the influence of Aristotelian uh, philosophy as their frame of reference. Instead of treating this as a figure of speech, as an idiom, they took it literally. But Jesus used all kinds of idioms. He said, I am the door, but you didn't find a door handle and hinges on him. He, he, he said, I am the bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And what he meant by that was that anybody can eat or drink. I mean, it's, it's non-meritorious action that any individual person can do. Anybody can eat or drink. And when you eat or drink something, you are receiving it. You're accepting it. You're taking it into yourself. You're making it a part of you. Uh, that which you eat and that which you drink provides nourishment and sustenance and strength for you. And so the picture of eating bread is a picture of eating Christ. That is accept, accepting Him by faith and trusting Him for salvation. So he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. That was what happened at the cross when He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. But the Jews didn't understand this. In verse 52, they said, they quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, they're thinking literally just like all those confused Roman Catholic theologians down through the ages uh, thought in a confused manner because they didn't really understand the Scripture. So in verse 53, Jesus goes on to explain to them, then, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... Oh, now that has a powerful statement. As soon as he said Son of Man, he's picking up Daniel 7. Son of Man is a picture of the Son of Man who will come in the clouds in glory from the Ancient of Days in order to overthrow all the human kingdoms and to establish his kingdom. So it all of a sudden has this strong messianic overtone related to the Millennial Kingdom. Now, isn't that what we're talking about in Hebrews 4? I mean, Hebrews 3 and 4. It's also what Psalm 95 was talking about. So he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You're spiritually dead. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And here the emphasis has shifted from the initial act of faith alone in Christ alone where you have life to the ongoing reception of Christ and the teaching of Christ, the thinking of Christ for ongoing spiritual life and spiritual growth. This fits with John's theology. John is the one who quotes Jesus as saying in John 10.10, I didn't come like a thief to destroy. I came to give life, phase one, salvation, and to give life abundantly, phase two, spiritual growth. So Jesus is expanding on the statement in verse 54. He's moving from the previous statement in verse 51. If anyone eats of the bread, they'll have salvation. To now, 
If they eat my flesh and drink my blood, ongoing activity, they'll have eternal life, the full quality and blessing and uh, of that spiritual life that God promises for us in terms of the full experience of contingent blessings in time. And he says, whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed. He is our nourishment. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And this phrase, abide, is a, is a code word that's used again and again by Jesus in John to refer to ongoing fellowship and nourishment. It's fully developed in John 13, and John himself, the Apostle John, in the first epistle, and his first epistle uses it in that same way. So we see that even within this statement, Jesus moves from phase one justification to phase two spiritual life advance as we as we feed on him. This, of course, is reiterated in other passages, that, such as Matthew four four. Matthew 4, 4, that talks about the fact that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the believer is kept going by constantly feeding on Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that we have the mind of Christ that he may instruct us. So we have the mind of Christ. And that is the Word of God. And that is the basis for learning how to advance and solve the problems. Well, we're only 80% of the way through, but our time's up. We're at point number six. We have three more points to go. So we'll pick that up next time, do some review. Pick it up as we transition into the fourth chapter. Just remember there were no chapters in the original. And so there's going to be a, a smooth transition in terms of the argument that that previous generation couldn't enter the rest because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, he means something different now, doesn't he? The previous verse, entering the rest, was the promised land rest. But for us now, present time, as well as the the, the hearers or readers of this message, there still remained a promise of entering his rest. So he shifts the terminology, their meaning now, to entering into that millennial rest and all the privileges and rights that go with that for the believer who has been successful. So we'll come back and look at that next Thursday night. Remember, no Bible class on Tuesday night, but we will be here on Saturday 2 to 4 and Sunday morning. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word, how it strengthens us. We thank you for the body of Christ, for friends and other believers who encourage us, strengthen us with your word. It is your word that is our source of strength. It is God the Holy Spirit who empowers us and produces spiritual growth. We thank you for these things and all the blessings you provide for us, and especially your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.